It's a car-centric world. You did have trains, though, until you ruined that. How dare we? We'll bring back trains just for you, Chris. Trains are the way. Stephanie Eccles, welcome to the show. Thank you. You are a very well-known personality in both the CSS world and the 11D world. We'll have a lot of great stuff to get into. You also do a lot of streaming. I've gotten the pleasure of watching quite a lot of your streams with guests like Ben Myers and other good friends of mine. So really happy to have you. We've made an effort of bringing on some real CSS experts recently because it's something that we kind of neglected throughout the first year of the show, I think. And you're one of the biggest proponents Components of what you're calling modern CSS. First off, I'll be curious, is that a term you're coining or someone else using the term modern CSS? Like where did that specific term come from? Good question. I'm sure I read someone else reference it. I will not claim coining it. I will claim making it more popular as the phrase being used. Um, <laughs> so modern CSS is something that felt appropriate to me as well, just because I have been a professional web developer for almost 15 years. So I've seen a good chunk of the evolution of the modern web as a whole. Being able to compare in my own career history, the tools and capabilities that we have both in the language and in browsers today versus 10, 15 years ago. And of course, more <laughs> for those folks that have been around since the beginning, you know, I remember some of my first bug busting was in IE 6 and 7. So compared to that, <laughs> I would call what we have now for sure modern, definitely paving the way forward in this huge push towards just this rapid evolution of CSS as a language too. So kind of all those factors combined. <laughs> CSS has been something that I know historically developers used to complain a lot about and like really, really hated, but I think that it's a lot harder to complain about it now because as you're saying there's just so many things that have been added to the language and things that have really helped with developer ergonomics and layouts and all sorts of stuff so for me if i was to think of like when it kind of transitions from like pre-modern to modern i usually think of flexbox as kind of like a big crossing point there when i was in my boot camp this is kind of interesting because we would learn css up to Flexbox. They didn't teach us grid, even though this was in 2020. So grid was definitely a thing by then. But it seems like they felt that grid was a little bit too modern. But I think that you probably tell people to use grid today, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, I just had to look it up this past week. So I had this stat ready, but we have had grid stable in our evergreen browsers since 2017. So that's four years. <laughs> absolutely. You know, that misconception is something that has been a motivator for the work that I do, for sure. 15 years is a very long time. It's almost like we're like Russian dolls. I've been doing development double the amount of time. Anthony's been doing development. You've been doing development double the amount of time I've been doing development. And obviously, when I started learning to program websites, Bootstrap 3 was in its height. Height. And we had tools like Gulp and Grunt, and they were a lot of the main tools. Where am I going with this is you've obviously just spoke about Flexbox as in the changing factor of a modern language. But when has CSS been modern? Because in my eyes, it's always been the same. It's always just 
been a language from the day one, a modern language that goes hand in hand with HTML. I never saw it as like, this is the next evolution, as in like Flexbox and Grid were the next evolution. But then I can see how you would say they were because in the Bootstrap days, we had cores of 12 that we used and we did a lot of tricks. So has it become modern or was it always modern and it's just changing evolutionary? Yeah, really good question. I think that you could point to a couple of things where folks who had been having different pains could definitely point out like this made my life easier. Yes, ultimately, it's evolution of language. So Flexbox, but also I'd have to like go see which came first. But I believe before Flexbox, at least before it reached maturity, one of the big things was, and this is going to sound silly if you are newer to the field, <laughs> but one of the things was getting border radius and box shadows and gradients. I don't want to dive into a tangent of Web3, but we called that Web 2.0 is when we got all those things. Like that was wrapped up in that terminology because it removed so many hacks within just a few months where we all got performance gains because we didn't have to use jQuery as much for some of these things or try to slice and dice out of Photoshop to achieve repeating seamless box shadows and all of these things. So sounds kind of silly, but those were like some of the real pain points, especially because the design of that time demanded those features. That was definitely one of the things that started to turn the language. And then definitely Flexbox, we were able to abandon floats, which again came with their own trickiness and hacks and <laughs> nightmares. I definitely hear what you're saying. And when I started, when I can like point to being aware of CSS as a powerful language was I took a one hour credit class at my college. It was just like an opt-in class. It was on CSS, which at that time they were teaching tables, but that professor was clearly like looking ahead and like, okay, I'm going to attempt to like offer them what we have available. I had been hitting my head against the wall. I've been trying to build a WordPress theme and the style of that time was three columns. So two sidebars and a, you know, your large content middle area. Every site looked like that, every WordPress site. And that was very tricky to do. So this class opened my eyes to how to fix my floats and also how to do absolute positioning, which was okay because we didn't have the iPhone yet. <laughs> so we weren't worried about responsive design yet. For me, I can understand like the idea, oh, well, I just didn't know about the feature in the language, but not necessarily recognizing that a particular feature was newer or necessarily being aware of the support of that feature. But I think the support factor is also the other reason for not entirely calling things evolution. It is an evolution, but at this particular time over the last couple of years and the pace of the language right now, it's not just the pace of the language, but it's also having that parity across browser. And that's another huge, huge part of why I feel like comfortable calling this period of time, you know, when we've achieved kind of this more modern language, this more modern like I said, features and capabilities is because of the browser support also backing those things. There's a really interesting word you used there is that you said we dumped float. That's such an interesting statement. If you've joined the web industry after Flex came out, you won't under even understand the tricks we have to obviously play with float that came back in the Bootstrap three days. I remember building my first website in a table in Dreamweaver back in secondary school in the UK. So that would be like 12, 13, 14. And now I'm I'm 25. So that must have been 12 years. So tables were tables were the thing then. And then you had that moment where, you know, the grid was what would be the word? The created, as in the bootstrap really pioneered 
the concept of a grid, i.e. 12 columns that a div could be floated between multiple columns. So you always thought in sixes or threes or twos. So you'd always have, if you want two equal boxes, it would be six and six or three, 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 three. And that's your fours. So you had that. It wasn't necessarily responsiveness yet, as you said, because iPhones still weren't massive, but they were starting to take off. But then that's when we had to, if I remember, start playing around with class names, just like we do today with Tailwind before we had media tags properly in Bootstrap. Uh, this is a long time ago. I grew up with Bootstrap too. <laughs> I'm trying to remember too. Yeah, it's that, it's that evolution of like, today, a grid is no longer grids of 12. You know, if you want two equal boxes, you do a grid of two. It's a really good abstraction. So as Adzi said about the language being modern, to words, the concept of a grid has been ingrained into us for like 12 years, but it's only been part of the language for, I forgot the date you said. Um, but it's that abstraction. My big question that I have with what was not in the framework before of core concepts, CSS and JS. What do you think the benefits are that everybody is using that over standard CSS? Because all it's doing is allowing you to define your CSS styles in JavaScript and basically have them injected in. And the only reason I can see now in like using it over plain CSS is variable support. I think personally, it's so much easier to define like a color variable in CSS and JS than it is in standard CSS. You know, if you look at styled components, it's one of the default customizations is like make the button red with the simple primary thing. Doing that in standard CSS, I think is more knowledge is needed if you get what I'm saying. No, I absolutely do. Just as relevant experience to what you're talking about. I led the development of a cross-browser design system for a couple of years. And what that meant is suddenly I found myself primarily writing React while also building out the design system, which included caring about semantic accessible HTML for starters, and then building out our CSS framework. Disclaimer, we did base it on Material. So we were using the Material UI and they have a really great theming system. It's really well thought through. And that said, when you're talking about that, just as a general solution, the idea of CSS and JS or related solutions there, what I found through that experience, talking to different devs, doing research around that field was that similar to other CSS frameworks in general, it's a stopgap solution for not having that full skill set on every team. And like you said, not learning maybe as deeply CSS. And it's very interesting. It's just kind of a fascinating phenomenon. I can't fault teams for seeking those solutions, of course. There's super valid reasons that they choose that solution. I just find it a little unfortunate because it means that the front of the front end and CSS becomes less valued as a skill. And I imagine designers are feeling a little less valued as well because they're getting replaced with those solutions instead, which brings up other concerns related to UX and accessibility. But anyway, I know the reasons for those. People will try to say it's performance. They'll try to say, well, essentially what they're trying to solve is issues that they may perceive with the CSS cascade and inheritance. So by using those solutions, they are essentially scoping every single style and encapsulating that and not even having to worry about styles escaping. So what is the issue with that? It sounds like you're saying that's that's a bad thing and that shouldn't be done. So could you kind of just like dig into like, why is that a bad thing to just scope everything and to ignore the cascade entirely? It's not a bad thing. It's just that's what 
those solutions are addressing. So you either learn and embrace CSS or you kind of just pick up the solution because it works. It's not that it's necessarily negative. However, I think one downside, again, coming from kind of a design systems minded background is maybe not being able to spot those repeatable patterns. What also kind of gets skipped in that process is the understanding that just like the rest of your application that you're building out, CSS has to be architected. Like it's no less valid. And what also gets skipped out is if you're not able to peel back and look at things from a component-based structure, whether that's a true design system or just kind of shifting your mentality, you know, you maybe are building things more than once, right? I'm talking now about your whole, you know, system versus just CSS, but you'll probably be writing the same CSS styles more than once too. This is where our utility frameworks have come from. That opens up another bag of worms of... (laughs) trying to upgrade solutions and all kinds of things. So I'm not saying these things are negative. It's just being aware of the trade-offs that are happening here, being aware of your own team skills, I think is probably what it comes down to. It's often either skipped as a core skill set of having that front of the front end in place of all full stack developers. When that happens, you're probably missing some accessibility because you're missing that skill set that's focused on the end user as much as just kind of making the system work and plugging in those readily available solutions. I'm just advocating for being aware of those different trade-offs and not necessarily saying this is bad, but just be aware. As you said, Anthony, why is it bad to scope it? Why is it instead of having it all cascading? Even from 2000, you know, I'm 15. We've been looking for ways to encapsulate that CSS, you know, make it sure that it's not as reusable, it's more specific. This is where I bring up my good old days as a CSS developer, BEM or BEAM, whichever way you say it, you know, the standard classic thing. I've quickly pulled up the CSSTricks.com article on it, obviously from 2015. You look at that from seven years ago now. The concept is exactly the same of what we're trying to do with CSS and JS now of encapsulation, as in making sure you can understand what the element is just by its markup structure. I think the most interesting thing about it all is that has React just ruined everything? The more I learn React, and the more I learn things like view and spell and, and sort of other things, the more I think, yeah, React is just making everything really complicated and just pulls you completely out of that old way of web development. But it's not necessarily the old way because so many other frameworks still do it that way today. It's just, as you say, when you drop it as like, I've dropped it for React, you start thinking in the React way of everything. And that's where even doing BEM in React is a little bit harder because obviously, there's 20,000 ways of doing CSS in React. And which one's the best one? Who really knows? Should you even do it? Who really knows? Is Tailwind really good? Who really knows? I was going to say, well, we don't know yet. Let's ask in five years. We like to think the landscape's moving really fast, but we're still dealing with old problems, is what I'm trying to say. Of like, not old problems, but old thoughts, old things like, how should we do a calculation? You know, how should we make sure that I can easily change a button from my primary color to my secondary color? And then we've had tons of other things chucked in there since like flex and grid that's made it all simpler. But then we've had other things like dark mode scheme, accessibility, hooks, more responsiveness. There's just so much. So much has happened since Ben was released. One quick note before we leave that topic. It's not 
as if the folks in charge of writing the CSS language, the CSS working group, are completely unaware of those solutions. Of course, they're not. They're amazingly aware of them. And in fact, they're working on two proposals in particular that will address those things in native CSS. Just want to mention them for those that haven't heard that this is on the way. We have both cascade layers and also actual scope in CSS that is coming. And these are not completely theoretical. Cascade layers is being worked on. It should probably land as an experimental pretty soon. And scope is in a very good place as well. So again, <laughs> you know, in terms of the modern CSS idea, if you, you know, kind of shoehorn yourself into these solutions, you may miss what's native to the language. And that comes back to you on loss in performance and probably just sort of that whole thing we all battle against as we try to do our jobs, but also stay up to date on things of trying to reinvent the wheel and then <laughs> that wheel lands in the web platform itself. So, I mean, that's kind of where I found myself of just trying to generally educate about what is available and really address those practical needs. Something I was curious about that kind of segues off of this is that when I was watching a stream you did with Ben Myers, you were having a conversation about when to actually use JavaScript for accessibility because we've talked about accessibility so far. And this is something that I know you are a very, very big proponent of. And it's one of the things I really love about your work. And we brought Ben on last year to do a whole episode on accessibility. And I've just learned so much from Ben about all of this. And you two had, a, I think, a great conversation, which is that you shouldn't be afraid of JavaScript and you shouldn't really try to create a zero JavaScript solution because there actually are things that you can do with JavaScript that are useful and do make websites more accessible. And it's about knowing what those are and how to actually do that correctly. So I'd be curious if you can go into that a little bit, like what would actually be an appropriate time to use JavaScript and not CSS for accessibility? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really actually very passionate about this topic, so much so that I have an article on Smashing Magazine <laughs> exactly about it. I love seeing folks, you know, creativity. And there's so much, of course, that is related to CSS. Folks love building CSS-only games or art, which, you know, isn't intended to be functional necessarily. But there are specific components, basically any component that has interactivity tied to it. And I'm not talking about the items that would be exempted from that are standard checkboxes, radio buttons, right? Ones where you're simply picking up on the checked state, for example, and giving it a slight style. We have to think about other accessibility concerns, but we don't necessarily need JavaScript for those events at a standard basic level. But the ones that I've seen like creative solutions that attempt to be CSS only would include things like tooltips, modals, tabs, carousels, and drop-down menus. Most of those you can get a decent way there, but you're probably using hacks. In fact, a lot of those use something like a checkbox because it gives you the ability to tap into a Boolean state, right? And so folks are like, oh, okay, if I have a Boolean state available, then I can change what gets rendered to the page if I can detect essentially true or false. <laughs> The problem is that when you generate a component that is made visible by a checkbox, starting way back at perceiving what that event is going to do, folks who are maybe not cited will encounter that and have it read to them as a checkbox, which immediately gives them the wrong information about what is going to happen. And then when you do actually say open a modal or something, in CSS alone, you cannot do focus management. So you cannot throw focus or trap focus to that modal. You also can't generate keyboard events 
if we stick with that modal example, one expectation is that hitting the escape key would close the modal. That's also an expectation for drop down menus and for tooltips. So you have all these events basically, right? And events just they are thrown to JavaScript and that's appropriate. So again, we can get a lot of the way there and definitely on the styling part alone, you know, for example, positioning that modal in the window. We can now do that with grid, for example, rather than trying to use JavaScript measuring client height or whatever you may have done in the past to position that modal. We can do that part with CSS, but we have to tap into JavaScript to manage, like I said, focus and some other related events. Yeah, definitely something I'm passionate about, something I've had to learn a lot about as well through just my own career development and being fortunate to have had about four years now where I've had pretty direct access to some really fantastic accessibility experts and advocates to be able to learn those things. So definitely a key part of these things. Again, it doesn't mean that CSS is completely out of the solution. It can get you a lot of the way there, but there's still a little bit left for JavaScript on those more interactive components. Yeah, it's the right tool for the job is really what it always comes down to. I'd like to get into some 11D stuff, but before we go off of modern CSS, there was a really great learn with Jason you did where you just like went down the list and taught like a whole ton of stuff. So I'll point people there, but are there any other specific things that you'd like to kind of point out as like where you consider key pieces of modern CSS beyond grid and some of the other things we've already talked about? Yeah, grid and flex are definitely something I talk a lot about. I think that getting more familiar with the different selectors in CSS. So sometimes it's really about just going back to the basics so you can help choose the right thing for the job, like you were saying earlier, whereas selectors is something you may have gone over super briefly a long time ago, but we have some really sophisticated ones now and including ones that can help with the idea of both scoping and inheritance. So I have a couple articles on those, <laughs> but also something else I've been really into that's definitely would categorize as modern would be our CSS math functions. Being able to wield those there's so many practical applications for those from controlling dimensions, but also doing it in a way that is future friendly for just huge array of devices that we have to deal with. So I'm talking about being able to sort of intelligently build in ways to scale up and down, which also has implications for accessibility, things like fluid type sizing, controlling spaces across changing aspect ratios of devices. So all of these things where now you can do those, that would be an example, kind of the reverse of what we were just talking about, where you can bring stuff back into CSS that maybe you were handling via JavaScript. That's pretty exciting. That's fun to kind of get familiar with and add to your toolbox, as I tend to say. <laughs> but yeah, there's just so many practical applications of Grid. So it's definitely something you'll find me talking about maybe the most. Awesome. Yeah. And we're dropping tons and tons of links here for anyone who's listening to this and wants to learn more. And you're such a prolific content creator, something I really admire about you. And you have your own podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? You were really, I think, a core 11D advocate. You have a specific term you call yourself. What was it? <laughs> I think for a while I was saying that I was the unofficial ambassador. <laughs> That's the one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The podcast we've talked about, Eleventy, it's kind of a general purpose podcast. I, as I'm a co-host for It's called Word Wrap. We definitely did talk about Eleventy on it, though, at some point. But I have the site, Eleventy.rocks, and I'm a little behind on updating it. But for my own personal work, Eleventy uh, Static Site Generator is my primary tool of choice, or even if I'm spinning up a demo work environment, I tend to reach for it just because it includes browser sync. So I don't have to rewire that up, <laughs> which I definitely have done in the past. Don't have to copy in a gulp config or something. 
but I love the flexibility of it. It literally got me re-excited about web development and it has been my enabler for all of my projects. <laughs> it has a ton of flexibility. If you're unfamiliar with it, it has 10 different templating languages. It's great to be able to write and mark down in one, you know, my primary blog area, but also have flexibility for templating features to loop through things or generate a random item or something like that. It has really easy way to hook into external data. So you can create a file that does a fetch and that data is instantly available to you anywhere in your site, which is really awesome. And of course, the features you might expect to being able to template things, it's really customizable to how you want to do your assets. There's not a bundler included. Folks have created starters. The community is really great. So there's starters that include Webpack, Parcel, Rollup, whatever bundler of choice you would like. Well, what's your thoughts on Slinkity? I think it's a really fun project to watch. I don't currently have a use case for it, but I know that a ton of people do. And I'm just not doing personally a lot of interactive projects. I have one that was built with 11D, but it was very low key. It was not a full spa or anything. It was just one section on the site, you know, that needed interactivity. So vanilla was totally fine. But yeah, Slinkity is exciting. It's using the talk about modern, probably the most modern phrase we have right now besides Web3 <laughs> would be islands architecture. So being able to hydrate just parts of the page when you need to essentially is my understanding of what that boils down to. So, I mean, that's great. And folks can, the idea too, is that with 11D, folks can write JSX or these other things that they're familiar with as templating languages and it's static renders unless you needed to hydrate. So very cool idea. I'm on board with it. Absolutely. Especially from a performance perspective. Yeah. Very well thought through and got to love Ben Holmes is great maintainer and <laughs> creator of that. So good community member. Yeah. And you mentioned starters. You have your own starter, the 11D SAS boilerplate. I know that SAS is something that seems to have stuck around, surprisingly enough, despite CSS bringing in many SAS features into the language. So what do you think is the appeal of SAS? Like, why do people still use SAS? Like, what has kind of kept it in the web dev conversation? One thing we don't have in native CSS as easily that I appreciate in SAS is just being able to easier organize my different parts and pieces, but still, for example, have a typography dedicated file and so forth. But I can ultimately bring those in and compose those into my style sheet. I appreciate that. There's also, even though we have CSS custom properties, which I definitely am making heavy use of, I still will use SAS for those properties that are static or I need to maybe do math operations ahead of time. So you're going to have currently more sophisticated math methods in SAS, but some of those are coming to CSS as well. Also, if you're building out a framework or a design system with SAS, you can sort of set up your structure for theming in just a bit more sophisticated way as well. I also enjoy, again, if I'm thinking about creating variations of components, for example, like I want to generate different colors of my buttons. I like being able to feed it a list of colors and then it outputs the class names in an each loop. So just kind of shortcuts <laughs> that I appreciate. Nesting is coming to CSS, but of course it's not completely stable yet and it won't be stable for quite a while. I do enjoy personally that syntax. I know that's a little polarizing, but I do enjoy it. And you'll see in my work and something I teach in a workshop I do, we intermix 
SaaS, and custom properties. And again, it's just, are they intended to be compiled in the browser? Like, are you taking advantage of kind of some inheritance that's going on there? Or is it more static and it's best served in SaaS? Or are you using other SaaS methods? I mentioned math. I also use various SaaS color functions to quickly create variants and things. So for me, it still has a lot of practical applications. And even with different things coming to CSS, I will probably not be moving away from SaaS anytime soon. What's your thoughts as a post-CSS as a replacement for SaaS? To what I understand, both tools can accomplish the same things, but one has it all built in by default, SaaS, but one, you can get the SaaS experience post-CSS, you can get the SaaS experience of like nesting and everything, but requires plugins. Do you think there's room for both to exist still in the future after CSS has implemented a lot of the things that they um, had stood themselves apart from for a while, if that makes sense. It makes sense. I don't have very much experience with post-CSS, though. I use it at the end of my build process only to run Auto Prefixer and CSS Nano. And then recently, I added the plugin to convert logical properties so that I can start writing them in my style sheet. But for now, they're getting converted to non-logical properties. That's the only ones I personally use. SAS, I think maybe another benefit is... Yeah, like you said, since it's plugin based for post-CSS, not having to kind of research which ones to compose together, especially if you're documenting things or sharing among a team, just kind of being able to load the one thing in your builds. But again, not having too much experience. I have not ever wired together different post-CSS things for a build. So I know Adam Argyle, I think, talks about that a lot. It's the main advocate I see for it. That's not a core maintainer necessarily, but yeah, just not my wheelhouse of knowledge. <laughs> We slid back into the the CSS or a couple more uh, Eleventy things I was curious about. I know that you've messed around a lot with Eleventy serverless to the point of kind of breaking it, I think. <laughs> yeah. How are you using Eleventy serverless? What do you think is interesting about it and how it's going to kind of expand out the capabilities of Eleventy? The summary on Eleventy serverless is using what you're possibly familiar with as actually not even within a serverless function. It's a, it's a kind of confusing name, but the idea is that you are throwing a build of Eleventy to whatever server. So this is going to be a little bit host dependent too, if they can do it. But you can create essentially dynamic routes, but you're ultimately processing those with Eleventy. So you have all the features of Eleventy, like the templating and data processing, but you can generate a dynamic route, essentially. That might be one of the motivating reasons you folks have had for choosing React or something or Next. If all they ultimately want is static, maybe Eleventy Serverless can fill that for you. So I used it to create just kind of a demo app where you could give it a image URL and optionally some other parameters. And what it does is it returns you some CSS to find the focal point of that image. So like if it's a portrait to make sure that whatever the crop you would like on it, the aspect ratio, that that face is within frame. That was kind of interesting because that was using Eleventy, but also gave me the ability to incorporate the sharp package. So basically any other like tools that you would need for processing, again, that maybe you would not reach for a static tool to do a dynamic result, that's what Eleventy is going to actually offer for you. So it's nice because it's opt-in, so you don't have to use it. Like if you choose serverless, you can do it on one route. It doesn't mean that your whole site becomes generated that way. So you can keep everything else perfectly static. But yeah, there's just a lot of opportunities. I know Zach, the creator, Zach Leatherman, was just experimenting with it for like OAuth and doing that validation. So definitely is going to really kick down the doors of what we thought were limits on 
static Jamstack <laughs> sites. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And bringing in auth and stuff like that, like that is FS Jam's wheelhouse right there. Like some of the big things we're always talking about, like you just, you need to have, if you want to build like an application and, and not a website. And so I think it's so great that 11D is like, we want to be full stack too. So like we are all about that. Yeah, I kind of forgot I did that search one that you <laughs> added in there too. But yeah, definitely opens up the idea of completely static search. So not even having to use, Algolia is super great, but the idea of just a simple form submit and then returning search results, that's something I worked through how to do with 11D serverless. Super practical use case, right? Because of course that's going to be dynamic, but you don't have to pre-generate that or anything and you know you can still get similar functionality. So yeah, really exciting potential use cases for that. Great. You are a prolific streamer along with all the other content you do in terms of writing and podcasting and be curious to know when you stream, how do you think about that? Do you bring on guests? Do you just create your own content? Do you like going on other people's streams? What do you think is kind of the value add of streaming for you? Great question. So when I initially started doing it, it was because I was just selfishly needed practice for <laughs> presenting live for an extended period of time as I was heading into doing my first virtual workshop series. I can say that if that's something folks are interested in and increasing their general confidence for that or virtual conferences, highly recommend <laughs> starting to stream. It also helped me not have to feel like I had to be completely polished every time, which was big, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I did a show for a couple months there, I called it Dev Roulette, where I brought in mystery guests. I think we did six or seven shows, a few with CSS-related guests, and then a few with accessibility. I'd like to bring that back for the new year, but yeah, I just got other things that I had going on. Otherwise, I've enjoyed joining other folks' streams. I think the back and forth is really nice because since otherwise you're sort of talking to your chat and they may or may not be super interactive depending on the subject matter and time of day and so forth. And so it can be really fun to either go in with a full agenda or to just be casual and welcome chaos and see where the stream leads you. Both can be fun. It's definitely how I found some of my favorite communities, though. So another big pro, I think, is otherwise Twitter's my main place that I'm interacting with folks or finding news about what's going on in the web world. So streams have been awesome for just kind of expanding my overall network and meeting some new folks and of course learning tons of new things about all sorts of stuff. So really appreciate folks like Alex Trost on Front and Horse or Jason Langstorff, Learn with Jason, who really are committed to bringing on different guests. And you can learn so much in such a short amount of time. So very cool medium that it's been fun to watch get more traction over the last year or so. Yeah, we had Jason on a while ago, episode 38, and it hasn't aired yet, but we have Alex Trost we interviewed a couple weeks ago, so he'll have an episode coming up as well. Streaming is just, it's so much fun. I love it. I love streaming myself. I love hanging out on other people's streams. And the thing you said about using it as a networking opportunity, it's so, so great to just expose you to all of these people doing all of this fantastic work out in the web dev community, because there's just so much going on and giving people that space to just you know, for an hour, just be like, here, let me show you all the stuff I can do. Like, I love that. I'm all about that. As we're closing it out here, are there any other questions you have, Chris, that you want to cover? You mentioned two of the things coming to CSS, native CSS. What do you think the trends are going to be in the next three to five years? Trends. Trends in terms of the language evolution, web trends. Trends is in the language of just CSS. Can be what we're going to do with it or where the language is going to evolve to. 
I think it's going to be, you know, the Cascade Layer Scope, the other big one that has a lot of progress already made is container queries. These are all in response to either issues we've had for a long time or also just bringing some of, like we talked about earlier, those external solutions back into the language. And I think we'll probably see more of that. Those are covering like the really, some really big pain points that have been, especially container queries, this has been pretty long standing. And I think it's going to be more smaller as in impactful features, but maybe less impactful in terms of scope of who's using them. Things come to language, things like different color features, like I said, more math functions. And I think what we're going to also see, though, is first of all, making sure browsers get all those compatibility. I think that's going to be the biggest push. The language is evolving, but also just getting browsers on board to get those in as soon as possible so we can use them. I think alongside of that, too, is better tooling within browsers would probably be the Maybe the upcoming push versus maybe slightly less in the language. Not that it's not going to, it will not stop evolving, but also better debugging tools and things is something I see already. I've seen a lot of movement in, even just in the last few months. And I see that part continuing and also the education part continuing. At least I'm hopeful, (laughs) you know. Basically, if you have learned something in CSS recently, please write about it. And likewise, if you have a constant struggle, please write about it because the CSS Working Group is watching and listening and you never know if those will make it back into browsers in the language. I have to admit that the dev tools that Chromium have been adding around like the grid support is it's really quite good to actually allow you to visualize the actual grid on the page, not just pretend you know what the grid looks like, but actually just show the grid. I guess my final two Quick questions, pixels or REMS? REMS 100%. (laughs) That's supposed to be REMS versus M's. I thought everyone knows you're never supposed to use pixels. People still use pixels. Okay, REMS versus M's. REMS most of the time, unless I actually want it to be font relative. (laughs) And that's not even describing the difference between the two. And also, what color format do you define your colors in i've become more of an hsl person but that's just been in the last few months <laughs> there we go hsl everyone talks about using it for how long it's been supported now for years yeah and some of us still use rgb but yeah thank you for coming on the show where can listeners find you yeah so definitely most active on twitter 5t3ph which is also my username on GitHub and CodePen and most places. And if you are interested in improving and upgrading your CSS toolbox, uh, my main place that I'm writing is moderncss.dev. And I guess from either of those places, you can get back to uh, the other stuff I'm working on. Very cool. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your knowledge on the wide, wide array of things you do. I am just so glad that you're out there putting out all this content because I learned so much from it. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Awesome.